what's up, everybody? The Doubles Alley is the brainchild of two cousins who consider themselves top tennis minds. In short, it is a podcast by tennis scholars for tennis scholars. We are smart about tennis and want our listening audience to think we are even smarter than that. Please consider us your phone-a-friend for any lucrative tennis trivia question. We're excited to recap the wacky and whirly 2017 season and look ahead to an even more wacky 2018. Hi, I'm uh, Philip Sofer. Hey, I'm Mark Elman. Yeah, and so our idea for today was to uh, volley questions back and forth with one another. We both... Uh, we both wrote up a list of five questions that the other one hasn't seen yet. Um, and the idea is just to uh, talk until the rally is over and then the next person serves. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to uh, ask Mark my first question, which is how many months slash years of your life would you estimate has been spent watching pro tennis? Hmm. Let me talk to my crack staff uh, research assistant here. So, okay, I think that watching tennis, I logged, because I grew up in cold weather, so I logged a lot of tennis. Uh, uh, I logged a lot of Australian Open tennis and even U.S. Open because I didn't want my parents to drag me to Yom Kippur, Russia sauna services. So I'm going to go, and this is, I'm just going to do, I'm going to say an hour a day, but that's times 30 years. So if we go an hour a day times 365, that sounds like, um, what's that, uh, 12 days times 30. So I think I've spent a year. I think I, I think it would be a year. You know, the question caught me off guard. You really, I thought you were going to give me the, the hard flat serve and, you know, you threw a big kicker in. But I would say aggregate time is about a year. So at least, you know, 3% of my life. Just watching and then playing, <laughs> playing probably more. So probably two years of playing and one year of watching. So I think we're looking at almost 10% of my, of my conscious life. Okay. So I calculated mine a different way. Uh, which is, uh, I'm 29 right now. I started watching Grand Slam tennis when I was four, when my uh, babysitter would have Wimbledon on. Um, and uh, so I'd probably, this is the lowest possible estimate. Uh, for every Grand Slam in the last 25 years, I've probably watched an hour a day uh, on average. Um, and so I did one times 14 days per Grand Slam times four. Uh, so it would be 14 times four is uh, 56 hours, 56 hours a year. And then that times 25 is uh, 1,400. Uh, and so, yeah, that's uh, uh, how many hours are in a year? 20, 24... 24 times 365. You said it's 1,400 hours? 1400 yeah, 1,400 hours. So you've spent about two months. That's about 60 days. But yeah, I think that's the lowest possible estimate. It's probably been at least double that. Probably a, six months of my life has been spent watching tennis. And are you, are you discounting all the live tennis you've seen, or you feel like you really you don't have enough notches on your belt as far as you know watching it live? Yeah, not enough notches on my belt for watching it live. Uh, but it's still like an outrageous number. Um, something that, when you think about it, is just insane. Do you think I should, considering I you know my my sum total is over a year just watching, including all the live tennis, um, and I do I did consider myself a groupie for a while. Uh, not to any one particular band, but just, you know, the, the sort of tennis scene in general. 
do you, do you think I should be able to get some some uh, postgraduate credit for that? Like, am I, am I not oh, of capitalizing course. on all that? Yeah, all of that course. You should time? get uh, you should get fly miles for it. <laughs> <laughs> that seems fair. I mean, I don't know if I can top that question. I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna play this a little bit safe. Okay. But you know, using kind of a uh, you know, and, and and being here in D.C. right now, we know how expensive rent is. But but using kind of a short term lease uh, metaphor. You know, how many of the current top 10 players do you think have a six-month or less term lease on their current ranking? Okay, let me check that out. Um, so the current top 10 is... Uh, no, but I would just... Don't don't say... Well, it's, I wouldn't say the players out loud. Just, you know, um, in looking at it now, out of those 10, I guess you, if you want to sort of say, you know, who's most likely to have their lease terminated the quickest... But just how many of those top ten do you think their lease will expire? In the, so in, in the next six months, Djokovic and Murray will definitely be in the top ten. So at least two players will be out. Um, and I'm pinpointing. So Sock is a tricky one because he 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 did really well in the ATP World Tour Finals and he won in Paris. So he just has a lot of points that uh, that he doesn't need to defend until later in the year. I actually think Stan is like likely to drop out of the top 10 at least for a little bit because most of his points were from early in the season. Um, and I just don't see him uh, with a like lower ranking uh, uh, um, getting back to the semifinals of the Aussie Open this year and the finals of Roland Garros. And he also won a few tournaments early in the season last season. Um, so yeah, I think he's probably going to drop out at least for a little bit. He'll he'll definitely get back in there, but I think yeah, Carreño, Busta, uh, Stan, um, and then yeah, I don't know if Sock drops out. It depends on. You think, you think team's going to hold on to his ranking, or do you, do you think that he is he's like the Thomas Burditch of, of this generation? <laughs> yeah, he might be. Who knows if he's better than Burditch because like. Uh, so Burdich got kind of screwed because uh, Nadal, Federer, Murray, and Djokovic just like monopolized big titles in that generation. But like that reign is going to come to an end, and then like team could team could win majors. Like who's going to win the French Open after Nadal Nadal's knees finally like give up on him? You know? Yeah, probably one of his love children or something. <laughs> Taking credit for them, yeah. Yeah. So, so your question actually remind uh, was very similar to one question I asked, which is uh, so Juan Martín del Potro is ranked number eleven right now. By the end of next season, will he be ranked higher or lower? Yeah, you know, t to me, he's a little bit um, he's a little bit uh, like certain actors. Where, um, you know, I guess he's like a Hollywood A minus, you know, even though he's won a Grand Slam and I think his Olympic um, performance in and of itself, like even if he hadn't won a Grand Slam, I'd say almost his Olympic performances alone are enough to earn him, you know, at least quite a few votes for the Hall of Fame. But I feel like he's just an actor who either can't stay in the limelight quite long enough or he just doesn't, he's not the uh, best at a certain role and he's not versatile enough to play different types of roles to stay. So I think that he um, has these like bursts of success, but I don't think they're, they're meant to last. So I, I would be uh, bearish on him. I would say that he, 
as much as I think that he is uh, the kind of guy that you always want to root for to be in the top 10, I think that he had another one of his runs that will probably go on for like another month or two, and then he'll hit another dip. Yeah. So I th- I'm thinking of it, and who's going who's gonna to go ahead of him and who's going to um, drop behind him. And I think Murray Djokovic uh, definitely move ahead of him. Uh, Nishikori and Rayanich, uh, they're chilling in the 20s right now. They're going to have some really tough draws like early in the season. And I'm not sure that they return to the top 10 next year, even though they're top 10 talents for sure. And uh, Kyrgios is another wild card. Um, he, if, if he finally finds the form, that if he consistently plays like he did against Federer in uh, Miami last year, like he's, he could be, he could, he's probably not going to be number one just because of where he's starting from, but he could be like anywhere in the mix. So like, uh, so there. Yeah, he doesn't have any points to defend in Grand Slams either. So you know he's playing with the house's money there, right? Yeah, that's so true. So there are three people who are probably going to move ahead of him. And I think uh, Delpo can, if he's healthy, uh, can uh, will move ahead of Carreño, Busta, uh, Sock, um, and maybe Goffin or Chilich. Like he's, I, I see him as in the Goffin Chilich team zone. Uh, and so yeah, it's uh, it's anyone's guess, but I would say he is like either ranked ninth or tenth next year. Okay, uh, so I guess it's my serve. Yeah. If, if you were advising a rising uh, star who had just broken the top 100 to decide whether to divide, you know, his time between, divide his time more or less equally between all three services or try to max out on one or two, uh, what would you advise and why? Um, yeah, that's interesting. So, like, uh, Jared Donaldson, he uh, he's the one that jumps to mind where when he was, like, 15 or so, uh, he moved to... Uh, Argentina so that he could train on clay uh, and Nadal also he says uh, you have to learn on clay because uh, that's the most intensely strategic of the surfaces like if you can play on clay uh, you can play on all surfaces but I mean that's not necessarily true like uh, there are a lot of clay court specialists who can't who, who don't have much success on grass or hard um, I would say it really depends on your body type. Like, uh, you want to specialize on the surface you think you're uh, most gifted at just to give yourself a uh, chance at breaking into the top 50 or whatever it is that... It's just just because it's so hard. You want to you wanna do what you're probably going to be best at. So for me, who's uh, who has the Diego Schwartzman build, I would probably start on clay, but if you are, yeah, I mean, and I'm really asking this question, like, yeah, like somebody's already broken the top 100, so they're 20, 21 years old, and you're okay. trying to kind of, you're really trying to map out the year, the training, the tournament schedule. Um, so they're, you know, they've are they're already on the tour, making a little bit of money, but they want to secure themselves. They would like to, you know, make sure they stay in the top, at least the top 35 or 40 for as long as possible. Yeah, I would specialize until you win like big tournaments on your best surface. Like, uh, I think your best bet is to uh, really train hard and just like try and crush one part of the year. Like, uh, like Rafa, I think he didn't really start thinking about the other surfaces until he won Roland Garros. You know, um, it's just like such a hard tour that like if you're not playing to your strengths, you're probably gonna. Um, 
fall out of the top. What do you think? Yeah, well, you know, your answer is certainly enough, I think, to to cover the topic. But I, I would say try not to be I, – I would try to be more the master of one or two services than the jack of all trades. I think that you can get enough bang for your buck in like a three- or four-month binge, and I think it's probably best for your body. I think you see Sampras and Federer who um, – became grass court outliers. I mean, even though they, they were grass court outliers and then very good on the other surfaces, and that was enough to kind of ensure a place in the top, aside from their just God-given talent. But I would say so. I think, I think the players end up setting themselves, for frustra- uh, uh, setting themselves up for frustration by trying to uh, be good on all surfaces and then experience a big string of losses. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. But there are the the blue chips who really are good at all surfaces. Like uh, Sverev is just he's had success on every surface, and he's like twenty. And same with Team, like he's young, and has won tournaments on every surface. So honestly, like if you're good enough, you can have success on all tournaments, no matter which your which is your favorite. But like if you're in the like sixty to one hundred range, like it's different from being like top 10 you know you you really should specialize is my my uh my very very educated opinion no. <laughs> um but yeah that let's uh let's let's uh move to the next question because you you mentioned the uh, thomas burditch earlier um and one of my questions was um who in your opinion is the greatest player never to win a major and uh which player who hasn't won a major has had the best career. So this is the peg for this question is really that 2017 uh, cemented the end of uh, Burdich, Sanga, and Ferrer as mainstays in the top 10. Um, and I'm just wondering, uh, the Burdich, Ferrer, Sanga type, they're all great players who uh, people who watch will remember, but uh, they won't really appear in tennis history that much. Um, and do you have any other guys like that uh, who come to mind uh, from all your tennis watching? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to shrink the field a little bit and just talk about the current players because I, I would have to backtrack too much. You know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I'll use a little bit of golf. I know that Sergio Garcia, I think, won his first major last year, and golf players have a longer window of time. Uh, I, I, I think that... Um, as a metric for determining whether or not somebody has uh, has lived up to their potential is probably wrong in tennis because deep down, all the top guns are pacing themselves. I mean, the top five are pacing themselves to win majors. So I think that rarely will anybody who, let's say, is outside of the top five have all uh, anybody seated ahead of them or have all the players seated ahead of them not you know not bring their a game to a major so i think it's even much it's much more difficult for them to win any majors particularly after you know let's say this this um this generation of beatles you know those four are really now just determining their career by how many grand slams they play so i think that the deck is stacked even more against them in a major so if i take burditch or sanga for example i think that it's better to measure their their career on whether or not they've made the finals or how many semifinals they've made. And if they've made eight or 10, then I, I don't think that they've underachieved. I just think that, you know, unfortunately they didn't get like as many breaks as maybe Nadal got. I mean, how many times has a major in the last 10 years been like this year's U S open 
where maybe four of the top six players in the world didn't play or five of the seven. That's just never going to happen. So, yeah. you know, this would have been the only chance. And I guess the best player in this generation, I would say, um, it, I, I, I don't think you can say Nishikori yet because I, I think that, he, I don't know if he was really meant to win majors, but I would say Songa probably just because he, he has so much game and, you know, British comes across as a little bit stiff, but the fact that he's made a couple finals, I think, in and of itself. And then what was the second part of your question? Like, who hasn't, who's most likely to win one that hasn't? Uh, uh, no, no. It was which current player who hasn't won a major has had the best career. Um, so you, yeah, you actually I, answered I, I, that. In that case, I would say, um, you know, I'd have to look at, I'd have to look at a few more, a few more variables. Uh, and, and doubles as well in Olympics. And I think Songa's done pretty well in the Olympics. I'm going to say Songa, but there's a little bit of bias there because he, he'd be in my top top three favorite players. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Songa fan Hall as well. Of fame, but I think he's had a great career. Yeah, I just love his energy. Uh, he's definitely someone I root for, but I would say I would argue that Ferrer has maybe had the best career of anybody who's never won a major. Uh, just he he was there for like a full decade. He was just sort of like uh, that. His prime just like directly coincided when with the time when Nadal, Federer, Murray, and Djokovic were making the semifinals of every major. Um, he was he was just born in the wrong uh, at the wrong time. Like uh, he was a great player, uh, and it's. Uh, it's uh, and he made a little a bit sad that yeah, which is he over cheating anyway. He also didn't really have like a major personality. Like uh, I guess Songa probably has the most marketable um, and just uh, best in terms of television personalities of uh, of the three that I mentioned. But uh, I think let's look at their head to head who I'll, I'll bring up Sanga versus Ferrer and Sanga versus Burdich. Uh, or, I mean, I would just say that Sanga's probably upset more big names on the big stage than Ferrer has. I don't know how many big upsets he's had. I think the draws opened up for him a couple times. Yeah. I think Sanga had a, had a few victories over Federer, um, in majors. Um, yeah, Ferrer, Ferrer, he was kind of owned by the big guys where Sanga could actually compete um, and did compete. Uh, but let's, let's see who, who won in their head to head. Wow. It's only three, one. Cause they were, they were both between the five and eight seed in every tournament. So they like barely ever played each other, but Ferrer has the edge three to one against Sanga and against Burdich. Uh, it's eight all. Oh wow, huh? that's tight. And then huh? I guess Sanga yeah. versus Burdich. Um, Burdich has Sanga eight five. So yeah, I guess. Yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. You know, maybe I th- I maybe think, we just I don't like Burdich. I don't, I don't. I don't think you, you know the curtain's coming down on on tennis players quite as quickly. So I think that there's always there's always a little more gas in the tank than we realize. I mean, I'm sure if we look at some of the top fifty now and, and look at the ranking at the beginning of the year we never would have guessed that you know certain players i mean and i guess karlovich is a great example of, of somebody who has uh stretched his career as long as possible and may still have one more little run in him so i guess you know maybe that's a, a question to, to revisit at the end of the year let's see who which of those three you know can, can score some points in the grand slams and- yeah if someone has a resurgence 
Yeah, I think we just don't like Burditch. And it looks like on ATP World Tour that he's uh, now sponsored by Adidas. And I think one of the reasons we didn't like him was he was sponsored by H&M. Same with uh, Rayanich, sponsored by New Balance. Really, 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 really takes the stock down. And they got some good good sales. There was, there was a good service game on your part. Yeah. Uh, What's your next question? So it kind of does go with that. Of the players who have been consistently in the second, and, and you have alluded to this already, in the second tier of the top ten, consistently in the second tier of the top ten and fell out last year, who do you think will make it back uh, uh, before Wimbledon? Oh, okay. Before, let's let's look at this. Uh... Uh, Wawrinka is not included in that question because he he, I consider him a top tier, uh, top ten. Yeah, he's won three. So consistently in the second tier of the top ten, who will be back in it? Uh, so that's basically Nishikori and Rayanich. Uh, who else? Yeah, I, I, in my list, I included Sanga, Burditch, and for uh, yeah. Uh, so Sanga has the highest ranking of them uh, at fifteen. You can put Monfils, Monfils in that. You know, oh, yeah, the, the whole French. Yeah, Monfils' ranking is in the dumpster. He's at forty six right now. Yeah, I don't see him coming back for Wimbledon. Uh, Let's see, how did Rayanich do in the early part of last season? Uh, I think it's going to be... It, it, the best answer is either Nishikori or Rayanich to that question. Um, uh, let's see. Nishikori got to the round of 16 in the Aussie Open and the quarterfinals of Roland Garros, so he can definitely improve on that with a good draw. And then Rayanich... Uh, He got to the quarterfinals of uh, the Aussie in around the 16. Yeah, I think it'll be uh, Rayanich just because he's he's still young. He's just annoying. Uh, he's the person I probably root against the most, uh, and I just he he's done it he's done it too many times. He's won matches I didn't want him to win, uh, and yeah. But between Nishikori and Rayanich, whoever. Uh, Whoever gets the better draws, I would say. What do you think? Yeah, I, I would go with three of those four for some reason. I think they, they're going to have the one last run. So of the four, Rannis, Nishikori, Burditch, and Songa, I would expect three of the four to be, be in the top ten by uh, come, come beginning of July. Okay. Wow, that, that's pretty soon. At least by the end of Wimbledon. At least yeah, by the end of Wimbledon, because that may be their, their tournament where they where they pick up more points. That'll be really hard, though, because like they didn't have any points. Where they're going to really gain ground is the second half of next season, because they didn't gain in. They have zero points to defend uh, in the second half of the season, and probably like quite a few in the first part. So, yeah. like, I feel like I they're think it just might make them play better. It may, it may not yeah. be, but I, I feel like the, I think there's too many flashes in the pan. Uh, in the top ten right now, so I think it's wide open. I so think who, who do you Sponsor, think is a flash in the pan right now? No, I would say I think uh, I think Sock is is the biggest flash in the pan. I, I don't see. I still don't see. I'd have to see more on the big stage with him. I think he just got got everybody when they had. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, like he, a, he, like he in the got everybody else when they when they had taken the early vacation. Yeah, and then, this this other guy, the Busto guy, who I've never really seen play, would yeah. would guess guessed him. Yeah, he um, played four straight he, qualifiers in the U.S. Open to make the semifinals. I don't know. Silic had a great year, but I don't know how consistent he is. And then, and I would say probably team. 
I don't know. It's, it's, it's he's either going to move up two, three spots, or move down like two. Yeah, team is really team always uh, plays really well at the beginning of the season, and then just doesn't have the gas to do it at the end. Uh, he's probably the second best clay quarter behind Rafa, right? Actually, Novak, obviously. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go to the next question. Uh, we've we've talked a lot about players who were injured this year. Um, what do you think needs to be done for there to be fewer injuries uh, next season and beyond? Right. You know, I, I'm not so sure that the injuries were as permanent. I mean, I think they some of them got hurt and then they just took sabbatical. And I think that's just looking at you know, kind of looking at some of the other uh, players who have really extended their career. I think they followed the Federer. I think, you know, a few of them looked at what Federer and I guess Nadal had done from the previous year and saw, saw the good results. So they just said, you know what? Um, you know, if I can get my, my three, I'm going to take a three months off and then I'm just going to take my maternity leave or paternity leave, whatever you want to call it. But I, I think that falls on the players. I mean, I think, I don't think the schedule is, is set up for them. Well, the summer's tough. You know, I think that that stretch of the three majors and like the two months. So I think that probably most of them are being set up for an injury after the U.S. Open or around the U.S. Open because of the amount of tennis they have to play or they have to be willing to concede one of those three majors and say, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to play to win, but I'm not going to grind it out in practice. And if I don't go as far in this major, then I can live with it. Other than that, I don't know, because you want to get tournaments all over the world, probably cut down and probably remove maybe one of the warm-up clay court tournaments and then probably some of the hard court stuff it just gets bunched together after Wimbledon. You know, so I think it's a combination of players being willing to take a little time off and then the tour saying, we'll overlap some of those clay court tournaments. Like maybe we'll do Rome and Spain at the same time or we'll do, you know, let's say Washington and, and some other and, and Atlanta at the same time rather than making the players, you know, play five, six weeks in a row. Yeah, I I really think the season something something needs to be done. Um, just like a one month off season is like outrageous. Like I played squash in college, and like three months of like uh, the grind was just like your body was done after that. Your body was done after two months. Like uh, I mean, these guys are professionals, and this is their job to like be physically fit. But like after a for anybody, no matter who you are, except I guess Roger Federer, like the toll like uh, gets to you um, of just of just like hours and hours a day of knees on hard courts. Um, so one thing, one solution I have might be to only count like your five best like Masters one thousand results and your uh, and your like uh, and your so that. Uh, Players, players don't feel like they're gonna lose ranking points if they sit out one weekend. You know, um, like uh, you. So during the season, um, the tournaments you basically have to play are the Grand Slams, and then four Grand Slams, ten Masters, one thousands, and if you make it, the year-end finals. That's fifteen tournaments, um, and then all the others, the like five hundred point tournaments, the two two fifties. Um, there should be a cap on like how many of each level like count to your ranking. Like the Grand Slam should actually should should definitely count, but like, 
uh, 10 Masters 1000s is so much. Like, we saw that's, what happened that's in... That's what they're expected to play? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're allowed to, like, be absent for one or two. I forget the, num the number, but, like, we saw in, like, Bercy that, like, dude, those guys were just checked out at the end of the season. Like, the final was Krajinovic versus Sock. The semis were, like, Isner, uh, yeah, like, Isner, Krajinovic, uh, Sock, and, uh, I forget who Sock played, but Sock was the higher rated, higher ranked player, um, and it's just, like, the end of the season, it's just, maybe just chop off the end of the season, but, like, something... And that's, that's for the other guys, I mean, that's, that's yeah. their chance, you know, that's like the, you know, that's like the... Um, rookies versus the second year player all-star. I mean, I, I understand it's also for the fans, you know, they're trying to bring the sport to all continents. You know, there really aren't a lot of big South American tournaments. There are not a lot of, I don't think really any in Africa. Um, you know, I, I'm sure some of that is, is giving, giving other stars a chance to, to have the spotlight, which is what happened. Yeah. And I guess maybe the top players, as long as they work it out amongst themselves, you know, which tournament they're going to skip. But yeah, that, that, that seems like, they're setting up. They're they're setting it up for a very watered down um, product at the end of the year, and yeah. there's no way they can keep just traveling from continent to continent. And I guess what you saw with, you know, I'm sure that all of most of the almost every Grand Slam winner of the current crop of players has taken at least now at least taken three or three or four months off at some point in their career just just to heal. You know, if not physically, at least, you know, if not physically, mentally. So, you know, I think what I, I'm sure Djokovic and Murray will will come back, you know, a month or two in next year and be so, so grateful they, they were able to take that. Grateful for their injuries or whatever it was that necessitated the time off. I mean, aside from the fact that they have kids, you know, which I, I'm still amazed that these players don't seem to lose a step when they have kids. In fact, some of them have actually started to play better when after their first child. So how they balance all that is... Something I think that deserves a little more publicity. Interesting. Yeah. Um, cool. So what what do you think that uh, what surprised you the most? I guess in sort of a, in in the macro and the micro, what what surprised you the most about um, in in sort of looking at the you know at the the chronology if you're if looking at the the bigger picture of of 2017, like what what surprised you the most? The storylines. Uh... I think Fed's resurgence, uh, I just had thought he was done. I mean, he's 36. Like, this is remarkable. Uh, so I'm a big Nadal fan uh, for listeners out there. I, have, I had been a proponent forever that Rafa is greater than Federer. But, like, I think one of the most depressing things for me about this year is that Rafa won two Grand Slams, and his resume for uh, greatest player ever has, like, taken a hit. Like... Uh, I'm as big an adult fan as there is, and I, I will now concede that unless Rafa, like, does more, like, Fed is uh, clearly clearly the GOAT. Um, and there's just no precedent for, like, a guy playing better than he had in eight years at the age of 36. Like, it, it was just remarkable. What, what, what were you surprised most with? Well, I didn't follow it that closely, you know, and in one way that makes it more interesting because then you can be really surprised by the headlines. I would say, you know, and I'd have to go back down the rankings. I think the bigger surprise are people in the top 30, and I consider the game, you know, very competitive, people of, of all 
um, stages of their career, but people who made the top 30, who I, I just, I see as like average Joes on the tour. Uh, so I would say that like, if, if I looked at the rankings of like numbers 15 through 30 right now, how many, to me, at least how many no names there are. And that actually is almost as much of a surprise to me, you know, then the other two filled, I mean, I think Federer winning the, the, um, the Australian Open, given the draw that he had, was incredible. Um, that's a lot of wear and tear of the heat. And then I think Nadal being, I think his resilience, I think that surprised me. I think that he doesn't take close losses, don't get him down, as, as one would think. You know, he, he claims that he loses confidence one in a while, but he just, like, he's very resilient. And I think, you know, I think his dedication, like, I think that he just, he um, stayed on the field a lot last year at times where people might have thought he would have taken a little bit of break. So I think that 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 surprises me. And the fact that those two kind of, you know, they really are. It's like, you know, we, we've um, we're replaying a script from like the last seven years from seven years ago where the rest of the competition is looking up at them right now. And so in that sense, like, you know, how, how long might might their reign continue? Will they, will they be battling out for one and two the whole year? And if so, you know, that's, that's makes their already impressive seasons even a little bit more impressive. Yeah. The other thing I was surprised by was, uh, Dimitrov, like just turning his career back around and like ending up number three in the world. Like I just did not see that coming. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy about that because tennis needs him. He's one of the more talented. He's like, probably a top five talent on the ATP and we need as many of those guys playing top five tennis as possible. Like Kyrgios is the one that I'm looking at right now. Like I'm just bored by him. Like, uh, at the moment, like underachieving, like I, I want to see this guy like contend for majors and like be in the top five. And you think, you think that's a coaching thing? You think he's just the right coach away from being able to do that? Uh, I think it's a mentality thing. Like, you just need to put in the work. And, like, uh, I don't know. He's also just very young. Like, uh, like if I were, like, between 19 and 22, like, the, how he came up, like, uh, like, it's just remarkable how mature some of these guys are. But, like, most people that age, like myself included, are just not mature enough to handle, like, what they're, like, what's thrown at them. And I think he's, I don't know. I follow him on Instagram and like, he's just playing basketball a lot and it seems like he thinks it's cool to like, uh, or maybe it is cool, but maybe it seems like he thinks it's what his fans want is to see him like wearing a Kevin Durant Jersey. Whereas like, I'm not the hardest core curious fan, but I root for him. And what I want is to see him like on the practice court saying like, I'm going to be ranked higher than Sverev next year. Yeah, unless they have to pace themselves in the big picture too, it's hard to say. You'd have yeah. to be a little, you know, I guess we'd have to be a little closer to the action. Yeah. Um, do you have any more questions? So my 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 last question for you is: uh, yeah, uh, is there any point where you feel, um, in, in in terms of adjustments that have to be made? You know, do you think it's? I don't. Do you think there's some modification of the three out of five sets? You know, if you have to do French Open and then play Wimbledon three weeks later and then 
and then the U.S. Open uh, five weeks later. Do you think there should be a modification in the warm-up tournaments? Should they play no-add scoring? Is there something, you know, to make sure that that way, you know, number one, you can have as many of the top players in these tournaments as possible, and number two, fewer people pull out early on in the tournament? Do you think... Do you think there's some modification either before the tournament? Do you think it should just be, you know, not playing out the fifth set in any of them, you know, all for one and one for all, and just playing a fifth set tiebreaker? So any, any modifications to, to, to have as many of the big guns playing in these tournaments and then um, playing throughout the draw? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm more of a traditionalist. Like, I don't really like the scoring system to change all that much just because, like, this is the way it's always been, and so we're comparing across generations. Like, if if it becomes, like, no-ad scoring, like, how are we going to compare the next great player with Bjorn Borg, you know? Um, yeah, and I mean, a little bit really of the warm-up like turn. I mean, something to, to make sure that these people can can have a full, full tank of gas, you know, by the time the Grand Slams come around. Yeah. Uh, so I think the one modification I definitely agree with is uh, tiebreaker in the fifth set of uh, major tournaments like the U.S. Open does. Um, it just like really screws up the draw when uh, when like in the Nadal Mueller match this year, I think it was 18-16, either 18-16 or 16-14. And Mueller just was gassed for the next round and just couldn't compete and Chilis just... Uh, just crush them. Um, and like, uh, if you get to six all in the fifth, it's pretty clear that it's a very even match and a tie break should do it. Um, like it does in pretty much every deciding set other than the majors. Um, yeah, I think it would force a slightly different strategy too. Like I would think from a, even from a competitive standpoint, you know, if you're playing against Isner, and you know, Jesus, you know, we're, we're going to head to a fifth set tiebreaker if I don't if I don't break his serve sooner. You know, might even pace yourself a little bit differently in the fifth set. I, I would agree. I can't imagine how many people who have won a really long five set match have won the next match as well. But but it has to be uh, the exception and not the norm. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. I've, this is my last question. Um, which tournament that is neither a slam or the year in finals do you, as a tennis fan, look forward to the most? Yeah, I mean, if you had asked me that question three, four years ago, I would have said the one in Miami. Um, okay. Even though when, if you actually go to the stadium and, and see, you know, like the quality of the infrastructure, it really shouldn't be considered the fifth major. Yeah. Uh, so I would say, you know, I, I guess I'd have to pick a tournament that I feel like becomes like a good, like, prism into sort of how the or window into how the rest of the year is going to go so i would have to say and even though i've never i don't watch it that much on tv but i but i would say the rome masters i don't know what what it is about that tournament you know in other words if i could go to one that or monte carlo i think yeah. it's just like it's you kind of get the sense of like how hard these guys are going to push themselves the rest of the year so you know, a few years ago, I would have said the Miami tournament. Now I'd say Rome or Monte Carlo because I think, you know, to me, it's not just about like how who's going to perform well at Roland Garros. I think both of those say like who's going to have a big summer all around. Yeah, I actually pinpointed Monte Carlo. Uh, it's just like such a beautiful facility. Um, and like, I think if I were to like if there was a trip tournament I'd want to travel to, it would be that. Um I love clay court tennis. I'm a huge Nadal fan, and Rafa's had a ton of success there. Uh, 
um yeah and rome i think yeah that would be a cool one to go to as well like uh rome is just an awesome destination um eat some pasta i, I wonder if the I wonder if there's like a pizza stand or a pasta stand at the stadium. That would be fun. Um, and then uh, the, I, I came up with this question because I I saw um, I, I I forget what I was reading, but it said that the players uh, named Queens Club for like years in a row as their like the player favorite tournament. Like apparently the players are just treated really really well there. And same with Indian Wells, like the players look forward to that tournament as well because it's just a first class event. Um, and yeah, that's like that's just like sort of an interesting thing. I think that uh, we look at these in terms of like Grand Slam, Masters, one thousand five hundred, two fifty. But like, yeah, each tournament really does have its own personality, um, and it is like one of the best things about the tour. Well, I think, I think that was a good first match, and I, I look forward to continuing this conversation. It's hard to believe that the off season is as short as it is. I mean, when you realize, when you, when you realize, they'll be, I guess, going to, to one of these oil rich countries in the next couple of weeks and playing some of the warm up tournaments for Australia. You realize just how short the off season is. Yeah. yeah. Oh well. Okay. Well, uh, to our listeners, thanks for getting to this point. Um, yeah, and uh, we definitely enjoyed this, so there will definitely be a round two. Um, all right. Yeah, have please a, check uh, out our website if you have any questions or comments, anything that you either you know, vehemently agree with or, or just nominally disagree with. We figured any form of disagreement would only be nominal anyway. You know, please, please shoot us a comment, and, and we look forward to reaching out to you guys uh, next, over the next couple weeks. Awesome. Yeah, the website is thedoublesalley.com. All right, cheers, man. Nice match. See you.